Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. Alva's on holiday. On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss whether Brexit could have been stopped, and you ask us... Is it sustainable for the Conservatives to keep refusing another Scottish independence referendum? So we thought in a quieter August week, it would be a good time to discuss a topic that we know is close to the hearts of a lot of our listeners. And it's something you've been thinking about, Stephen, after your interview with David Liddington, the former Europe minister and Theresa May's de facto deputy. Could Brexit have been stopped? Now, in your interview, he laid out a few scenarios in which he thought that might have been possible. And he was talking about the time before the referendum. Obviously, whenever you interview someone, well... Hopefully, whenever you interview someone, they say more interesting things than you can fit in the piece or things in the kind of sort of asides. Sometimes, of course, the reverse happens and the word count and you have to put a not very good interview and kind of stretches out like this endless treadmill of despair. But in the case of, of David Liddington, he said a lot of really interesting things. Throughout the interview, we kind of referred, you know, talking about a variety of things. He very much was always with the opinion once it happened, it couldn't unhappen. He was not, a, you know, he was someone who was very much just like, look, you have to come to terms with the fact that it can't, you know, it has to be implemented. But he, in the course of he laid out three sort of hypotheticals, which I discussed in the piece. The first being what would have happened if the referendum had happened later in the parliament. Obviously, the referendum happened as, well, I was about to say, as the refugee crisis was at its height. Obviously, the refugee crisis, once again, yeah, kind of, and I think will continue to be a feature of politics in every couple of years, it, it, it peaks and troughs. But the refugee crisis was, was at what then was thought to be its height. This meant there were a lot more headlines about immigration than we would expect usually, although obviously, of course, headlines demonising migrants are a sort of regular feature of British public life at any given time. But when he said, yeah, well, you know, it could have been different if it had happened when immigration had been slightly lower salience. The second was, well, you know, what would have happened if David Cameron had, instead of, because obviously he had this whole idea of, oh, I'm going to renegotiate, and, ooh, if I don't get my way, maybe I could campaign for out, which just obviously wasn't true. Yeah, would it have been different if he had started campaigning for in, you know, kind of much, much earlier? And the third variable was, in his words, not mine, the Labour Party getting its act together and making a full-throated case for Remain. 
I think there are a bunch of other campaign hypotheticals, which I imagine we'll get into as we discuss those three. But yeah, I just thought, yeah, because he said so many interesting things and because I kind of want to in this quiet period, I probably will do the same thing with some stuff like Andy Burnham said and I couldn't get into that interview. Kind of go like, oh, here's some, you know, it's summer. Here's some stuff to think about. But I think the thing I thought was interesting, take the kind of, well, actually, let's take the two Tory-facing ones first, right? As you remember from covering that time, the reason why the referendum happened so early in the parliament, which I do think, considering it was so close, right, you, you kind of have to accept that any number of things could have changed the outcome, which I do think was unhelpful for Remain for a number of reasons, was because the parliamentary party would have lost its nut if, you know, to use a highly technical Westminster insider <laughs> term, if the referendum had been pushed back further, right? You know, the mood in the party was so bad. And they were so kind of worried, and, oh, you know, Cameron's going to betray us. He, they already had to do so much strong arming of the various sort of, you know, your people like people like Sajid Javid and Liz Truss, you know, people who are notionally Remainers. But I mean, I doubt either of those people in the privacy of the ballot box actually went, yeah, I'm voting for Remain. Right? They were, I would like David Cameron to remain as Prime Minister. And I think the pressure on those people to just vote, yeah, to, to campaign with their hearts and not with the boss would have just been so overwhelming that I think it would have I just I just don't think the Tory party could ever have got to a point where the referendum was held later and similarly I don't think the Tory party could ever have got to a point where David Cameron would have been able to do the I like Europe without caveats without this renegotiation but yeah I sort of wonder what you kind of think having obviously been in Westminster during that that fraught time. I think one of the things that we forget is that the levels in Downing Street or at least in the remain or, or you know remain sympathetic part of the Conservative Party at the time the mood was very complacent because basically they came off the back of that majority in 2015 that they you know not everyone was expecting of course you actually were one of the few Westminster journalists at the time who noticed that Labour <laughs> were not doing very oh, well I didn't at think all the in that would do general election yeah, so, yeah yeah exactly so yeah. no one really thought thought that that outcome would happen so you know it gave them I think a false sense of security riding in to that parliament off the back of that majority that they weren't expecting after a difficult few years of coalition. Secondly, I think the Scottish referendum in 2014 was probably the biggest driver of that complacency, to be honest, because it fed into this sort of Westminster wisdom that was already sort of underneath the surface of, oh, you know, the British voting public, they're sensible, they're cautious, they're risk averse. They want us to look after their money. That's why they voted Cameron in, you know, after five years of austerity. That's why the Scottish electorate voted to stay in the United Kingdom. What they underestimated was the fact that the politics in England were actually really different from the politics in Scotland. And so I think that complacency fed into the Remain campaign, particularly that complacent Cameroon Tory faction, which meant that they didn't campaign in the same way that the Vote Leave campaign did. And, you know, we've been through all of that. And that's sort of a well-written history of how well they campaigned and sort of their appeal to people's emotions and simple messaging and um, some scare tactics in terms of suggesting that Turkey was sort of on the brink of joining the European Union, for example, also evoking the NHS, you know, the great love of the British voting public and how it would get hundreds of thousands of pounds more if we if we left the European Union. So there were those campaign messages that, well, you know, we, 
well-worn arguments about whether it was right or wrong to use them, but it was clear that the Remain campaign was on the back foot from the start, not just because they were worse campaigners in that campaign, but because of the context of the Scottish referendum and the Tory majority before it. I think you're exactly right. The, the 2014 and 2015 electoral events were so important to... So I mean, the number of people in the lobby who say to me, oh, it'll be 55, 45. And it's like, why? All of the polls showed it was neck and neck. You know, it's like, yeah. it's one of those, it was just like, where, where is this extra... You know, kind of like, where is this extra, in some case, six points that would require Remain to get? Like, where do you think this is going to come from? But I think it was a problem for a couple of reasons. The first was, and I, you know, I think, you know, David did a really interesting uh, interviewee and, yeah, he said a lot of other interesting things that I will obviously get to in, in future pieces. But I think what's really interesting is, is Vote Leave, well, um, vote, lots of people in Vote Leave were convinced, oh, well, Corbyn made a huge difference because, like, they... And so many people on the Conservative Remain side basically had this idea of, like, you know, step one hold referendum, step two, question mark, step three, Labour Party saves EU membership for us, which, like, just wasn't going to happen at any... Basically, the moment that the Labour Party was not going to be an effective presence in that referendum campaign was those first opinion polls coming out after the referendum, showing them being swept away in Scotland. And just the mood in the PLP was very much just like, I'm not getting Scotlanded. Now, of course, hilariously, many of those people since have been Scotlanded. And I think one of the stories of politics that people kind of have has been underwritten and also underappreciated is that Labour MPs went into the 2016 referendum essentially in a position of not one vote lost for the EU. And then Brexit happened and they're like, oh, God, this is awful. I'm really sad about this. God, maybe we should lose some votes for the EU, and and it kind of and the sort of radicalization of a lot of Remainers in the Labour Party is partly now there are some honourable exceptions, right? There are some people who had second referendumers who were very, very clear that they thought in the twenty fifteen election was possibly their last chance to save EU membership. They you know did campaign very hard, but but a lot of a lot of Labour MPs I think did have this kind of attitude of like I'm not becoming Jim Murphy Mark II, so I'm going to take a back seat. And in some ways, the fact that Corbyn himself was as openly Eurosceptic before being elected leader, I just don't think actually mattered at all because none of the other candidates, okay, the other candidates would like have been more sad about the result. But all of the other candidates, other than Mary Cray, who couldn't even on the ballot, precisely because people in the PLP were just like, yeah, I remember like one of the hustings I covered, she was just like, of, you know, it's like, oh, would you share a platform with David Cameron because of what happened in Scotland? And they all did the, no, never. And she was like, of course I'll share a platform with David Cameron. It's our membership of the EU. Are you having a bubble? <laughs> and, and Labour MPs didn't like that. They didn't want to shed votes to stop Brexit. They saw that as Cameron's problem. Yeah, that's really interesting because, again, it shows how the mistakes made during the EU referendum campaign and, and the outcome of the vote were partly down to the lessons that people wrongly perhaps learn from the from the experience of the Scottish referendum because that was another piece of received wisdom wasn't it it was like better together you know screwed Labour in Scotland we should never share a platform with the Conservatives again it was the the argument was a little bit like the idea of being the junior coalition party you always get screwed so that's really interesting that that tied into it too but what I thought was really noticeable from your interview with David Liddington the original interview not the offcuts this week was that you you said the most important thing to remember about him is that he was a Eurosceptic and this is the thing David Cameron sounded like a Eurosceptic. So all of these conservatives who were making the argument for Remain, or at least the sort of more mainstream ones, 
had spent most of their careers denigrating Europe and saying that they we desperately need to reform it because it's not working for the UK. So I wonder if the die was already cast and, you know, the, the, the mood was already there. Not say, like you say, the result was really close and it could have gone either way, depending on the, whatever was salient at the time. But, you know, the, the, the context was among most English voters, all we hear about the EU was was negative. Listeners to the World Service you know, can pinpoint exactly the moment on election morning that my heart breaks. And it's always useful doing the World Service because it forces you to kind of zoom out. And the presenter goes, oh, you know, the two parties of the centre-left have gone down to sort of historical defeats. I was like, yes, yes, they have. Now there'll be a referendum on EU. I was like, yeah, probably going to lose that too. And I, I only realised that I had started crying when I left the my tent, bumped into someone who worked for Nick Clegg. So, I mean... And they were just like, my God, are you okay? You look terrible. <laughs> but, but yeah, like, the, ultimately, yeah, you can go, you know, if they hadn't decided to be quite such a radical right-wing government in that 2015 to 16 period, right? I mean, you know, they would bring forward plans to sell off ha- every housing association property. They were, yeah, they had a, a, a very tight 2015 budget. They had that, you know, the, the cuts to tax credits. There was a bunch of quite radical stuff that government was doing, which is obviously what governments usually do immediately after being elected, but with absolutely no thought about the fact that they had quite an important electoral event coming up in, in the summer of 2016. But ultimately, the underlying problem always was that the resting level of Euroscepticism in England was really high, right? That's why so many Labour MPs were quite nervous. And I think, you know, one of the interesting mistakes in, in both coverage and indeed as a result in broader understanding among Remainers at large is the group of people who've been silent throughout the Brexit, you know, both the campaign and their were Labour MPs who would say, oh, I like EU membership. Well, I think we're better off in. I'm not going to tell any of my constituents that. And, and they, yeah, and they were the people who, you know, who essentially, you know, voted down every option in the Brexit, yeah, you because know, they didn't want to have to have a difficult conversation with their memberships. So they didn't vote for a May's deal. They didn't want to have a difficult conversation with the electorate, so they voted down the second referendum options. They didn't want to have a difficult conversation about free movement, so they voted down the EEA options. Because those veto players didn't. No one picks up a phone to a journalist and goes, I've decided to do nothing today. I've I've decided to make no decisions. And it kind of meant that throughout that process, no one really heard from them. But it was quite important that no one heard from them. Now, in terms of the percentage of Labour supporters who backed leave, I think it's it becomes implausible to imagine that any Labour leader would have done so much better, not least because the Labour leave figure is identical to the Lib Dem leave figure, identical to the SNP leave figure. What I think is true is if if the Labour Party had been willing to make the level of political sacrifice it did in the Scottish referendum, I think they'd have scared enough Conservative voters over the line, right? You only need... But they weren't going to do that because, as you say, this huge number of people who wanted to leave, and that was... Yeah, I just... I've never really bought the idea that it wasn't baked in the cake. And I think, you know, someone on Twitter sent a very nice reply about this, saying, you know, ultimately the delusion it was is a sort of coping strategy for some Remainers in the Remain campaign. And it's about... Yeah, and again, you know, it's the business of spads to try and buff their legends. But, you know, it's ultimately about people in the Leave campaign and, you know, Dominic Cummings doing the, ah, oh, no, it was our brilliance. And it, w- it could have been 60-40 for, for Remain. It's just like if Tony Blair in 1999 didn't feel politically strong enough to win a referendum on the Euro, the one election that a conservative politician won against Tony Blair is 1999, save the pound. 
It, Gordon Brown being like, Lisbon Treaty referendum? Oh, God, better sign that in another room. Like, this idea then, then it was winnable from that point. And I think you're exactly right. That I think essentially for a country's membership of the EU to be stable and sort of securable democratically, the main parties of office can't be majority or a skeptic. They have to have at least like at least four conservative cabinet ministers would have needed to actually be genuinely enthusiastic about the project. And it was really interesting just how much David Liddington and it's other things I will get into in some of the other offcuts. You know, kind of this is someone who knows Europe really well, right? It's the longest serving Europe minister of uh, our time in the project and, and indeed in that his, the history of that post was when he was when, when yeah when we when he was minister was then the longest serving Europe minister across the block. Uh, that title's now been taken away from him by his German counterpart. But this is someone who knows Europe, is fond of it, but continually spoke of it in this kind of, well, look, the thing the government doesn't understand is if they want their climate stuff, it's going to have to come through their cumbersome processes. Oh, the Union of Democracies is a great idea, but if you're bringing France and Italy in, you're bringing the EU in because they will just refuse to act like separate countries, however much you may wish it. Although, obviously, I, I, I have a rather different feeling about those things than David Lidding does. I think he's correct about all of them. But one of the problems is, is if like you're great pro-Europeans in, in like a political party, if you're David Liddington's, and this is the thing that if listeners see it in a charity shop for five pounds, I would you know recommend picking it up. This is the thing which does come through in David Cameron's book, as well as his love of dad jokes, huge digressions, which serve, serve only to be like, and then I told the hilarious dad. There's, there's like about <laughs> two paragraphs about Desmond Swain, as far as I can tell, purely to facilitate like the time he told a classic gag. <laughs> <laughs> about like it's like so you know Desmond Twain is just like oh they're this they're this he's like sounds like Beirut in the 80s and it's just like, <laughs> this did not need to be committed to print but the thing that comes really comes through is just he is a Eurosceptic and that again ultimately not stable to have EU membership when you have that many Eurosceptics floating around in your main party of government, right? They are the they are the most successful political party in the United Kingdom by some stretch. Yeah, and let's not forget that the opposition to that in the build-up to the 2015 election wasn't there. So I remember covering, and I'm sure you did too, I remember covering a number of CBI conferences ahead of 2015, and it was the big topic of conversation at a lot of them, or at least maybe because I was covering it from a sort of Labour facing journalist point of view, was Ed Miliband's prevarication over whether or not he would commit to holding an EU referendum. So while they weren't sort of explicitly Eurosceptic themselves, the Labour Party in that period, building up to the controls on immigration Miliband 2015 campaign, was on the fence. Yeah, I mean, and this thing, because obviously I, I back then was, you know, at the Telegraph. So obviously I had a, a slightly different perspective in terms of who I was talking to regularly. So the kind of people were talking to from the Labour Party were people who very much did want them to back a referendum, whether for electoral or ideological reasons. But as you say, right, there was... And obviously I was also talking a lot to, to Lib Dems in coalition because I did this whole like, you know, well, I'm the nice one. <laughs> yeah. uh, you can you, you know, guys are the nice ones you too. Can, you can talk to me and <laughs> I'll always be your friends. <laughs> they very much kind of felt like, you know, look, one, they knew that the membership, you know, didn't want it. Clegg in the run up to the twenty fifteen campaign had sort of resiled himself to the idea and he was just like, Well, look, Cameron's not gonna be able to not do this. I personally cannot lead us into a referendum. I don't believe we can win because he felt so bruised by, you remember in 2014 when they did that whole, like, we're the party of in, yeah. in the Euros. Now, it's understandable that people's anger about the Lib Dems being in coalition was more important to them. But the fact that they couldn't even, in any of the big sort of remain strongholds, right, they couldn't even get a Lib Dem MP out of London 
on the ticket of UKIP want to take your EU membership away, Labour are equivocating, the Tories want to risk it, we are the party of in. And I just think that showed, and that's kind of this thing, people love to go like, oh, well, la Corbyn, Corbyn. But Corbyn was a symptom of that yeah. broader problem, right? The progressives didn't care enough about EU membership to even do a protest vote in favour of the Lib Dems in any of the kind of Remain strongholds, in inverted commas. Labour MPs didn't care enough about EU membership to reward the one candidate who was willing to say, no, I, I will fight for this with every sinew of my body with a place on the ballot. The Labour ca- ca- Labour members, and this is the thing, is I know it's like been weirdly memory-hold, we're now like a bunch of like pro-Corbyn people. I mean, mainly they're pro-Corbyn people who've never met Corbyn, but yeah, doesn't that stand in their way? Love to go like, oh no, he, he, he was never actually an open Eurosceptic. And then a bunch of anti-Corbyn people have to go like, oh no, we were lied to. Neither of which is just untrue. Live in the real world, la- world lads. Like, he explicitly was like, yeah, I don't think it's a good project in 2015. And not only were Labour members fine with it, none of the other leadership campaigns even tried to go like, hey guys, whatever you think about this Corbyn guy, maybe it's not a good idea this year, <laughs> like, you know, less than a year before this referendum, for us to elect a Eurosceptic. And I think that, and it, that kind of shows that... The project, unfortunately, just didn't have enough purchase in the British political mind for its defenders to be willing to prioritise it. And I think that is part of the difference between Stronger In and Better Together. Better Together was fundamentally a campaign where people were just like, if we have to smash the Labour Party to save the union, we'll do it. Whereas Remain was a campaign run by people who were like, well... I don't want to lose any votes to the Labour Party. And then some will go like, oh, well, that's a problem because I don't want to lose control of the Conservative Party. We were kind of hoping you would lose some votes. And they're like, oh, but couldn't you nuke yourself? And it was a bunch <laughs> of people going, look, I'd like to remain, but someone else needs to take, take political damage for it. And yeah, that was that was the story of, of the, you know, the years running up to it as well. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Don't forget to listen to our bonus podcast series, Westminster Reimagined with Armando Iannucci. You can get it in this podcast feed. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So our question today is, the Prime Minister is visiting Scotland this week, but he has refused to meet with Nicola Sturgeon. With Indy Ref 2 coming around the corner, will the Tories' strategy of refusing engagement with the Scottish Government prove successful? You mentioned this in Morning Call this morning, didn't you, Stephen? I did in my free morning email, which now runs 
12 months a year. Yeah, I was about to say, except for Christmas, I thought, don't jinx it, don't jinx it. <laughs> and now runs 12 months a year, hopefully with a break for Christmas. But, you know, let's not make promises that may be taken out of my hands. <laughs> it's a really good question. So I think, so I'm also, in addition to doing Morning Call, I am rereading McKittrick and McVeigh's Making Sense of the Troubles because I'm a judge this year for the Wingate Prize, which is basically a prize for both fiction and non-fiction that celebrates Jewishness. I don't know why I was unable to pronounce Jewishness on, on the first go. Ah, I can't, I'm doing this weird Sean Connery. Well, yes, you'll see. Um, <laughs> anyway, Mr Goldfinger, this book would celebrate Jewishness. And I always think it's a good bit of hygiene before you start reading the submissions to reread a really good bit of fiction and a really good bit of non-fiction. So you actually kind of have a sense of what the bar is because otherwise the problem is you get all of these submissions and you start to without really meaning to to grade on a curve so i reread uh, the glass hotel by emily st john mandel it's a fantastic novel i also wanted to consciously pick things that although i then realized actually arguably the glass hotel would be eligible for the wingate but that's i kind of ruined my own exercise there but yeah kind of thought okay i'm going to start with two things that i know aren't submittable but kind of give me a sense of what the bar is so i reread uh, the glass hotel it's a brilliant novel everyone should read it and then i've been rereading mckittrick and mcveigh and one of the things that and, and everyone should read it, it's a fantastic book but i think one of the really important sort of differences there are of which, I mean, the differences between Northern Ireland and Scotland are innumerable. But one of the important differences is that because you don't have that economic segregation and that lack of sort of opportunity, you know, institutions of the state, like the police being, in, you know, almost entirely hostile to the Catholic popu population, you don't have the any of, I would say, the political preconditions to Scottish independence moving from a movement of people who... I think not unreasonably, feel that, you know, look, they've said they'd like to revisit it and they can't. But but I think although people will get grumpier, I don't think then you get to the political instability of political violence, paramilitaries on the street, because there simply isn't that economic disillusion and that kind of isolation of a whole section of society, which does mean as long as there is a conservative majority down south, they can keep doing the no. Never. In, now, of course, there are two quite important unlesses there. The first is it is not certain that the legal position that that right does rest in Westminster will be confirmed by the courts, right? It is possible that you have a situation which a court goes, no, no, it's perverse. Yeah, no, you, you, you have this, this idea you don't need to grant a Section 30. You can do it whenever you like. So they may then have to fight it yeah, in circumstances they don't want on terrain they don't choose. But also, as long as there's a conservative majority down south, you know, it's not, it's not certain, right? It's very easy. And I think one of the things that, you know, because people kind of got very overexcited, not least because the Labour Party got very overexcited about the scale of the conservative wins in the local elections at the height of the vaccine bounce. But I think people have kind of forgotten that, you know, even now, right, with their opinion poll lead, if you assume, you know, the Labour, Lib Dem and Green vote continues to behave quite rationally, as it's shown you know, in the by-elections, indeed even in the local elections. There's clearly an immense willingness on behalf of supporters of all three of those parties to, to gang up on the Conservatives, right? You know, the sort of lose effect. Lose is a really good example, right? The Progressive parties you know, all fight each other in a local election. It, arguably, I think the Greens are probably actually best placed to become the dominant party on the council. But at the constituency level, the voters all flow behind the Lib Dems and the Lib Dems came very close to winning it. And I think 
the vulnerability of the conservative majority, even in political circumstances that aren't that great for the opposition, I think is underrated. And the kind of the innate volatility of British voters and the volatility of first past the post. So it's it's highly possible, right, that after the next election, suddenly all of this no, never is like, well, actually, no, you are going to have to do it because the condition of you being able to enter Downing Street are than the 47, you know, 52, however many it ends up being next time, SNP MPs say you have to. And I think then the question is, is, is the Conservative government doing enough to win win the referendum whenever it happens? I mean, I would say obviously not. But yeah, what's your kind of sense of it? Well, no, I agree. I think on what you just said, obviously not. You know, the integrity of the union clearly has not been a priority for this for this government. We had some really interesting polling, actually, that should be online now if listeners want to go and check it out because I don't have the numbers in front of me. But the lack of connection that voters in Britain feel with people in Northern Ireland is really low. And the concern about Irish unification is also really low. And of course, we know that's reflected in polling that, that's come before among Conservative Party members who have said that the cost of losing Northern Ireland would be a price that they'd be willing to pay for a hard Brexit. But also we know from the deal that Boris Johnson negotiated that he, you know, wasn't particularly concerned about putting that border down the Irish Sea. And, and so it continues. Clearly, there is less of a commitment to the unionist part of the Conservative and Unionist Party name than there has been in the past, even under Theresa May. So, I mean, yes, obviously, they're not doing enough for the integrity of the union. Of course, Scotland is, is a different issue because more people in Britain care about Scottish politics than they care about Northern Irish politics. Sorry to put it so bluntly, but it is just, but no, true. Yeah, just true. And so that they... They may find that the political cost of ignoring what's happening in Scotland may be higher. But we've passed the danger zone period, which were the Holyrood elections, with, I think, like you say, not as much of a swell of anger as some expected. You know, I think before before that election came around, people were saying, well, they'll have to. If there's an increase in the mandate for independence, then the Conservative Party will have to face that face that decision and they they haven't really been forced to face that I don't think and also let's not forget that it does kind of suit Nicola Sturgeon to have that conservative majority in Westminster which is always a little bit of a mitigating factor in how hard she's going to fight I don't know if that's fair but I sometimes feel that yeah I think this is the thing in some ways right this is the perfect political situation right in terms of Nicola Sturgeon's political strengths right she's someone who in the same way they've come was very good in opposition at performing competence right she performs a kind of I'm very orderly, I'm well-kept, I have, like, you know, neat bank manager hair, I'm good <laughs> at doing the kind of, like... And lots of this she's good at doing because it's sincere, right? She's good at doing the, like, I have a, a genuine hinterland because she does genuinely have a cultural hinterland and does, you know, have a keen interest in novels and all that stuff. In terms of the things about her which are she's politically good at and the things that Boris Johnson is politically bad at, he's almost perfectly designed to throw all of her assets into sharp relief. And for them, I kind of think, well, what is the best way to argue for Scottish independence? It's just to, well, I'd say to, to run Scotland well. It's to continue to maintain the perception that they run Scotland well, which is, in terms of the big argument, they're making actually more important than whether or not they are actually doing that. All of that works quite well for them. Now, obviously, the long-run problem is is that I think if you go from Conservative majority government to Labour majority government, or let's say you go from Conservative minority government to Labour majority government, then I don't think it really matters because ultimately the biggest force tearing apart the union between England and Scotland isn't we have a Conservative government in England. 
right? It just is. And, you know, people can, you know, every time I say this, you know, conservatives, like, look, you can prioritise having a conservative government for other reasons, but if you actually wanted this problem to go away, you would not vote to have another one of these things down south, right? But the problem is, is if that problem goes away, but it goes away in a way which doesn't give the SNP the ability to call a referendum, then then the air comes out of the balloon a bit. You can very easily see how the advantages that have accrued under the Conservatives, just as, like, ultimately, you know, this one people are like, oh, you know, if you hadn't had devolution. Well, the reason why there is a sort of, there is, you know, why the facts on the ground had moved towards devolution is because of the pressure that having a Conservative government for a long time had put on the union. And it turns out, oh, what, the the air goes out of the balloon the second then, then that, that that issue is put to bed. Mm. But, yeah, as you say, they, they are, are very different, right? Ultimately, politics in Great Britain has, has always been been quite indifferent to Northern Ireland. The man on the street has never cared all that much uh, about it. But where I think that does have, yeah, it obviously has problems of its own for the, for you know, for Northern Ireland and for for, for that con- constitutional relationship. But where I think it has problems for the union between England and Scotland is that people perceive that indifference to the union with Northern Ireland as indifference to the union with Scotland as well. And one of the biggest problems that they create for themselves is this idea that they just don't care about it very much. Yeah, is it sustainable? Well, it's sustainable as long as the Tory majority is sustainable and as long as there are no legal events which force them to have a referendum on their hand. And I just feel, it feels to me, listen, betting on both of those things continuing to be true is quite a big bet. Yeah. Not least because if I were them, I would take the view that I would actually rather be in charge of managing any adverse change for if they lose the referendum, then, you know, day one, Labour minority government takes office, day two, Scottish referendum, day three, Scottish referendum lost. Because the departure of Scotland from the United Kingdom would inevitably mean that there would be some constitutional reform in England, right? Even the Labour Party isn't quite so silly as to go, do you know, it would be a brilliant idea <laughs> if we just kept persisted with our electoral system having like, lo- well, I mean, OK, they've already actually lost Scotland as a reliable place. Then, but, you know, but, but having no chance of winning it no back because it's gone. no chance of winning it back because it's gone. Yeah. If I were the Conservative Party, I would much rather be in charge of that process myself. But yeah, politically, right, it works well for them because this, you know, despite the fact that it is ludicrous for people to like, oh, I'm voting Conservative to save the union. It's just like, you know, I mean, it's, Literally, it's like I'm having a vodka shot to fix my hangover. But it works. It works for them politically. It creates, and I think, you know, one of the big problems, you know, problem for Jeremy Corbyn, which is why they you know, went, no, we're not doing a deal with them. It's a problem for Ed Miliband, which is why they belatedly did, no, we're not doing a deal for them. It's why Keir Starmer this morning has gone, no, we're not doing a deal with the SNP. In terms of the political circumstances, it is ideal for the Conservatives, I think, to continually be able to play the card of unions in danger. If there's a referendum, it'll be probably be lost. Don't vote Labour. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and please leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.